to my wholesome family and friends near and far, old and new. This is Kevin Mercurio on the mic, and welcome to the 39th episode of the Metaphorogens podcast. As always, to show support if you like this sort of content, it's very simple. Please take five seconds to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify or Google Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on. It truly helps small, independent podcasts reach new people and grow the show with minimal effort. You can always leave a small review as well and follow at Metaphorogens on Instagram that's at Metaphorogens, where I'll be posting all of my updates, as well as on my personal website, kjbmercurio.com slash Without a doubt, I will hold another draw on my 40th episode for the ultimate Metaphorogens prize. Again, a week before the finale, I will post a picture of the renowned prize on the Instagram page, so do follow for a chance to win the customized thing here right here with me right now. Okay, so for today's episode, I'll be talking about a not-so-common expression that gets typically associated with our dissatisfaction with current affairs. Cue the lights. We find ourselves in an ordinary suburban neighborhood on the outskirts of a city. This neighborhood is so suburban, in fact, that each house looked identical to the next. Two-tier complexes, fancy fountains positioned elegantly in the middle of rounded driveways, wide, inviting modern windows, pointed triangular roofs with maroon shingles, and large, trim lawns for gardening and playing. It's so photogenic of everyday living that it was featured on the cover of Baseline Living magazine. The residents of the neighborhood were quite proud of this feature. You are a recent resident of this neighborhood, called Three Bears Wood. After gaining accolades in your field of work, you began acquiring real estate in suburban areas just like this one, renting them out and gaining profit. Sure, this may be the reason for the housing crisis suffered by people in this city, but hey, people need to make a living, and people need space for their shit. Lucky for you, you have one of the corner houses, and have the peace of not sharing one siding with another resident of the neighborhood. Stepping outside on a beautiful morning, sun shining warmly as it peeks over the horizon and a light breeze casting fresh air on exposed skin, you glance around. The symmetry of it all is breathtaking, an aesthetic admiration you have carried across amongst different aspects of your life. You look to your neighbor on the left, a similar looking house designed to yours, driveway and front gate, just like everyone else's, except their fountain was square-shaped. That's fine, you say to yourself, despite the fact that you love 90-degree corners. You also notice their luxury SUV is of a gold tinge with number-coded locks. That's okay, you say to yourself, despite the fact that you love golden number-coded locks. On top of that, you notice the lawns were a brighter hue of green, reflecting the morning dew straight in your direction like sparkles in the dawn. You think about this for a second and head back inside. Working from home, you become engrossed in these findings. Who designed their driveway fountain? What brand of car was theirs, and was it custom painted? Why was their lawn so green? Instead of filing your reports, as people who work from home most certainly do, you start thinking about how you can improve your current situation to match theirs. You call your contractor and demand that he renovate your fountain into the shape of a diamond. 
You peruse the car dealerships in the area and find a custom-painted golden SUV with number and letter-coded locks. You take out your sprinkler from the back shed and plug that into the garden hose. Within a few weeks, the renovations had been completed, the car was exchanged, and the lawn looked much greener and healthier. In fact, as you step outside one morning, you are pleased at the modifications made. All was just right, and you smile at the sun rays gleaming off your face. This same morning, you look to your neighbor on the right. Again, a similar-looking house designed to yours and everyone else's, except their large, inviting windows were cleaner. That's fine, you say to yourself, despite the fact that you love transparent glass. You notice their mailbox had a cute little flag perked upwards by the post service if the delivery was made. That's okay, you say to yourself, despite the fact that you love Keech household staples like mailbox flag notices. On top of that, you notice their lawn was an even brighter hue of green, almost like a miniature sea of kelp waving in the early breeze. You think about this for a second and head back inside. Continuing to work from home, you become enraged with these findings. Who cleans their window glass? Where did they get their objectifiably useful mailbox? And why is their lawn so green? Instead of replying back to emails, as people who work from home most certainly do, you start thinking about how you can improve your current situation to match theirs. You hire a cleaner to swing by the house every week. You head to the local Home Depot to purchase the bright red archetype of a mailbox with a flag that gets raised, signaling an app on your phone that you've received a delivery. You also purchase some fertilizer from their gardening section to use as topsoil for your lawn. Within a few weeks, the windows were pristine, the mailbox was functioning both aesthetically and effectively, and the lawn looked much greener and healthier. In fact, as you step outside one morning, you are pleased at the modifications made. All was just right, and you smile at the gentle wisp of air surfing through your hair. This same morning, both your neighbors were outside as well. One was taking out the garbage for tomorrow's pickup, and the other was at their front steps grabbing the daily newspaper. You smile and wave, and they return the gesture. They begin walking around their fences and stride towards you. The left neighbor begins the conversation. <clears throat> Fancy found you've recently renovated. Nice new whip as well. Thank you, you reply. The right neighbor chimes in. Wonderful windows overlooking outside. Magnificent mailbox as well. Thank you, you reply. They get on the same level as you on your front steps. All three of you admire the morning feeling, sun shining warmly as it peeks over the horizon and a light breeze casting fresh air on exposed skin. You all look at your neighbor across the street. Yet again, a similar looking house designed to yours and theirs and everyone else's, except... Looks like they had built an additional unit over top their pointed roofs, the left neighbor says. That's fine, you say out loud, despite the fact that you love having additional space for your shit. You also notice that. Looks like they widened their garage door for multiple cars to fit inside, the right neighbor says. That's okay, you say out loud, despite the fact that you were thinking of purchasing a boat that could be more easily placed in this wider format. On top of that, you notice. <clears throat> Looks like their lawn is the brightest hue of green I've ever seen, you say. Don't worry, the grass is always greener on the other side, the left neighbor says. You look at him. Why would that be? The right neighbor chimes in. We're not exactly sure, he says. 
there is probably some scientific explanation behind it. It's no use. They always get their properties on magazine covers. With a hearty nod, your neighbors depart from your premises and back to theirs. You think about this for a second and head back inside. Still working from home, you become infuriated with these findings. How did they balance that additional upstairs unit on their pointed roof? How did they widen their garage door without expanding the actual space? Why was their lawn so damn green? Instead of participating in virtual meetings, as people who work from home most certainly do, you started thinking about how you could improve your current situation to match theirs. You head to the local wood shop and purchase some boarding to build the upstairs unit yourself. You also order a wider garage door that, instead of opening upwards, it slides downwards through a crack in the driveway pavement. You also buy a drone that helps water and fertilize your lawn 24-7. Within a few weeks, the storage unit was built, the garage door was wide enough for additional vehicles, and the lawn looked much greener and healthier. In fact, as you step outside one morning, you are pleased at the modifications made. All was just right, and you smile at cloudless sky, knowing that at least you had the greenest grass in the neighborhood. A few weeks later, you realize how much money that stupid drone cost you, and so one of your neighbors suggests you attach a camera and get into the hobby. You invite them over to test out the camera and fly the drone around your neighborhood. Indeed, seeing all the houses for the first time, you realize that there are no more house modifications you believe are necessary. Suddenly, a slight wind drifts your drone into the neighborhood adjacent to yours, and you see on the camera a large commotion with press vans and photographers. They seem to be taking pictures for Above Baseline Living magazine. Astonished, the three of you look at the houses in the much more sunlit area. Three-tier complexes, extravagant fountains placed elegantly in the middle of rounded two-lane driveways, comically wide, inviting modern windows with electronically controlled tint, pointed triangular prism roofs with mahogany shingles, and vast trim lawns the brightest hue of green imaginable. That's fine, you say out loud. Despite that, in fact... It wasn't fine at all. Okay, let's purge the imaginary jealous rage out of our systems and return to our own baseline living. Hidden in this reverse spin-off of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, I actually found myself thinking, damn, I wonder if everyone has the same ideal household in mind based on the luxury and status of the most prestigious neighborhoods of our cities. Anyway, hopefully you caught today's expression, which will quite literally tie nicely with our Psycom topic. But why is the color of our ubiquitous non-native plant used to dampen our desires? What's the origin to the expression, the grass is always greener on the other side? Most of this information was obtained from various articles discussing the potential origins to this expression. All sources we mentioned in the description. I will start this segment with an exercise done by every human being almost every single day. Imagine your ideal life. What is so interesting about human thinking is this exact ability to think ahead, to design and mold the future into something that at least resembles one that we could anticipate. 
You might not think you do this, potentially propelling forward through your education right now, in between temporary jobs, living paycheck to paycheck, waiting for a big break. But even at this minute level, we are planning for the unforeseeable future. What to have for breakfast in the morning, what to wear, what means to commute to particular destinations, what to do or have accomplished in the next hour. Whether your choices conclude with you achieving an ideal life or day or not achieving these are within the control of yourself and perhaps the foundation you now stand on. Throughout our lives, we are constantly trying to ensure that we make choices that bring us satisfaction in the immediate future or beyond. Now, you might be arguing with me here, exclaiming that there are individuals who actively choose to make wrong choices that steer them down less preferred paths. People with depression, addictions, anxiety disorders come to mind. But is this necessarily true? In an article written by Recovery Ways, a treatment center for addiction behavior in the U.S., they discuss the different ways on how depression affects your decision-making. Things like indecisiveness, risk aversion, and the hopeless belief that whatever choice they make will have little impact in improving their well-being. You don't need to be a trained therapist to understand that any choices stem from imagining your life in the future, good or bad, and lead to a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Our desire for betterment can be fueled not simply in the expectations we have for ourselves, which should be our priority. These expectations can be greatly shaped by the individuals around us, particularly those in the same stage in life. Likely since our species' inception, we look at our family, friends, colleagues, neighbors, even individuals in different economic classes, and stack ourselves in comparison. Oh, look at that marvelous house. I wonder what she does for a living. Oh, look at their beautiful children. I wonder how their family dinners are. It is inexplicably obvious that these sorts of questions, superficially innocent, may tend to carry emotions like envy if our own circumstances are not mirrored. Sadly, we cannot even escape this reality that people may be living the exact ideal life we hope to have for ourselves. Even if nobody in our immediate social circle is elevated onto some pedestal of life achievement, there will be countless people online who are not only on this pedestal, but flaunt it to the masses. This is the very rationale for which countless studies aim to investigate the effects on psychology of social media users at various ages. In a Guardian article published this year, writer Ian Sample summarizes one such study published in Nature Communications about how, despite there not being a quantifiable link between social media and well-being, there are certainly, quote, windows of vulnerability in which social media relates to our outlook on life and the risk for developing anxiety-related conditions. We now come to today's idiom, often associated with these themes, the grass is always greener on the other side. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines that expression is, quote, used to say that the things a person does not have always seem more appealing than the things he or she does have. No matter the financial wealth, the material accumulation, the psychological attribution, there will always be something someone else possesses that we will look to and desire. Even the Dalai Lama, described in his book The Art of Happiness, was once at a supermarket and caught himself desiring something at a shop. Yet, it's not the complete abolishment of desires, but the ability to catch yourself in discontent. He is remarked saying, quote, When you're discontent, you always want more, more, more. Your desire can never be satisfied. But when you practice contentment, you can say to yourself, Oh yes, 
I already have everything I really need. There are so many other instances that this universal expression of catching herself in discontent appears. On Mama Lisa's international music and culture blog, commentators mention other variations to the grass is always greener on the other side. In Hong Kong, it's the rice and vegetable from your neighbor smell better. In German, it's the cherries in your neighbor's garden always taste better. In Turkish, it's the chicken is seen as goose by the neighbor. And let's not exclude French, Danish, Vietnamese, and Portuguese who have all evolved to have this expression of greener grass. I'm always delighted to see consistency in languages around the world. In fact, this is such a widespread cultural phenomenon that there is even a condition named after it, the grass is greener syndrome. Often connected to FOMO or the fear of missing out, the e-magazine Psych Central describes the grass is greener syndrome as, quote, the idea that there is always something better that we are missing. So rather than experiencing stability, security, and satisfaction in the present environment, the feeling is there is more and better elsewhere, and anything else than ideal won't do. From this, we look towards idealized futures with fear and fantasy, fear of committing to something larger than ourselves or compromising on our values, and fantasizing that personal happiness comes externally. This often occurs in relationships. In a 2018 article written in Bustle, writer Lacken Howard describes the damage which greener grass syndrome can have. Quote, When you're scared that your relationship isn't good enough for the long haul, and you seek to replace your current situation rather than improve it, that's when grass as greener syndrome has the opportunity to really do some damage. You might start to have omnipresent doubts about the future of your relationship and constantly go back and forth on whether or not breaking up is the right choice for you. But alright, where does this expression originate from? Know Your Phrase and Idioms.com recount how herds of animals always move towards greener pastures. It is also often noted that fenced animals like cattle will try and reach their heads to grass at boundary lines, where perhaps fields have not been trampled by their presence. Other sources like PhraseFinder state usage of the idiom in print from an 1897 Pennsylvania newspaper, the public press, quote, The Klondike gold mines are wonderful but probably not so wonderful as represented. Grass is always greener, you know, further away. As well as from an 1853 New York Times article, quote, It bewitched your correspondent with a desire to see greener grass and set foot on fresher fields, both of which use the metaphorical meaning and thus concluding that it is well understood metaphorically well before that. We go all the way back to 1545, where, described by writing explained in the village idiom, an English translation of Erasmus of Rotterdam exists with a similar meaning, quote, The corn in another man's ground seems even more fertile and plentiful than our own does. Yet, even this idea of our longing to match our neighbor's agricultural wealth can be traced back even further. Also mentioned is the Roman poet Ovid, born during the reign of Augustus. In one of his famous works, The Art of Love, published in 1 BC, Ovid states, quote, The crop of corn is always more fertile in the fields of other people, and the herds of our neighbors have their udders more distended. It is this proverbial announcement that is the earliest source mention of this renowned saying. In all this researching of the origin, I find it interesting that our desires are rooted in how we tend to love others and ourselves 
how we keep and maintain the relationships we have with our fellow neighbors, and how we quell self-doubt with contentment and happiness. In the majority of my sources, writers often claim that the expression is long past its time for usefulness, and that it should be instead replaced with, quote, the grass is always greener where you water it. It seems like this practice of being mindful of your current status by Ovid, the Dalai Lama, or relationship therapists alike is shouted from the top of their lungs. Perhaps this is what needs to be more addressed, that in our search for greener grass, we forget to pick up something more essential in sustaining our own. Before we get to the next segment, do you love podcasts? What about starting one yourself? I often think back to early 2020, a time so seemingly distant in the past, and reflect on starting this podcast. I believe it was one of the best decisions I have ever made, and I say that for two reasons. One personal reason is that it provides you with some secret motivation to learn about things you are actually interested in, while framing concepts in ways that make sense to you and an audience. For a professional reason, this experience has given ample opportunity to meet people I find fascinating, podcasters, science communicators, people passionate about their hobbies, and even some real talk with friends of mine. Starting a podcast can be difficult. What sort of microphone should you buy? What topics should you discuss? What recording software do you need? What the hell is an RSS feed? However, you can find answers to all that and more through my podcasting hosting platform of choice, Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is a seamless service that supports anyone wishing to launch and produce a professional podcast, hosting over 100,000 people on their platform. Your show is completely online and listed on all the major podcast directories just minutes after uploading your recording. In addition, you automatically get a stylish podcast website, detailed analytics to monitor the growth of your show, access to videos and discussion forums about all podcast topics like industry trends and marketing your show, plus much, much more. There's also an incredibly supportive community of podcasters in the Buzzsprout community, offering great advice on any questions you may have. If you wanted to test out this whole podcast gig, you can jumpstart your own podcast and get a $20 Amazon gift card by clicking the affiliate link in the episode's description. This lets Buzzsprout know that I sent you to their service and will help support Metaforgins and money towards creating more super cool butterfly merch. Buzzsprout the easiest way to start a podcast. And now, back to the episode. For my communication segment, I want to do something a bit different and highlight an important topic taken up by many early career researchers at my university, Trinity College Dublin. Yes, here in Ireland, college and university are used interchangeably. And that topic is research sustainability. If there's one thing I know for sure, it's that the hospitable world is going to end, eventually. Yet there is one species on this planet that has the power to change how soon that will be, humans. There is no question that we have drastically impacted the climate. To quote Sir David Attenborough's speech from the COP26 opening ceremony, quote, our burning of fossil fuels, our destruction of nature, our approach to industry, construction, and learning, our releasing carbon into the atmosphere at an unprecedented pace and scale. 
the amount of carbon in our atmosphere has greatly surged, and with it, so have global temperatures, leading to uncharacteristic weather phenomena felt by millions around the globe. Lowering our collective carbon footprint through harvesting sustainable energy and waste reduction is the scientific endeavor of our lifetime. Through observation and analyses, scientists have the ability to monitor Earth's climate and innovate solutions to reduce our capability to destabilize. This, in itself, is quite inspiring, and has led to the initiation of countless academic, corporate, and community projects aimed at creating a better world. These stories, from the individual to group-led pursuits, are the basis for scientific discovery in this regard. Happily. Most academic institutes seem to acknowledge this prescient issue, and this is echoed by my current university. In fact, hosted in February was Trinity's 20th Green Week on the theme of repairing our broken food systems. Throughout the week, students were encouraged to try out a plant-based diet. In an email sent out to all academic staff and students by Professor Yvonne Buckley, Vice President for Biodiversity and Climate Action, quote. Livestock alone account for more than 14% of global greenhouse gas emissions and 25.8% of Irish emissions in 2020. A mostly plant-based diet would cut those global and Irish emissions by 70% and 63%, respectively. Now, despite not actively participating in climate research, I often still reflect on my own carbon footprint as a PhD student in the biological sciences. I looked through rooms of incredible equipment using large amounts of electricity from the grid. I look at biohazard bags containing absurd amounts of single-use plastics. I look in ventilated fume hoods stocked with opaque jugs of chemical waste. I have made excuses to myself and peers that these are consequences of pushing that scientific frontier in my research field. In reality, the bittersweet realization is that every scientist can decrease the amount of inefficiencies in their research by making small changes that lean towards sustainability, thus actively contributing to the global green effort. Of course, scientific laboratories are resource-intensive spaces. The nonprofit organization My Green Lab estimates that labs use ten times more energy and four times more water than office spaces. In addition, labs produce 5.5 million tons of plastic waste each year, meaning that this mass of non-degradable plastics end up in our landfills. So, this got me wondering: with over 300 labs actively conducting research, what is my university doing to implement better sustainable practices in the pursuit of scientific knowledge? And what is my role within the scientific community as a whole? In an effort to make sure their voices are heard for a University Times article that is probably never going to see the light of day, I had the opportunity to speak with several members of the TCD Green Labs initiative. One was Camilla Roselli, a PhD candidate in Trinity's Institute of Neuroscience and previous chair of TCD Green Labs. Together with recent PhD graduate Martha Gulman and Trinity's sustainability advisor Michelle Hallahan. Roselli not only kickstarted the Green Labs initiative, but also co-created Trinity's Green Labs Guide, a comprehensive overview of the consequences for global scientific research and practices that could be implemented to reduce inefficiencies. Its link will be in the description. A majority of the guide, tailored to early career researchers, focuses on four main elements: one, water management; two, energy; three, waste; and four, green chemistry. 
Water management is certainly not on the list of priorities for most trainees at a public research institute. Mentioned in the guide, quote, labs contain a myriad of water-driven equipment, from condensers to pumps to autoclaves. Reducing your lab's water consumption not only saves the precious resource of fresh water, but also reduces the carbon footprint from electricity needed to pump water throughout the water infrastructure. This could include a simple aerator attachment to faucets, which most of us have already, that greatly reduce water waste, as well as the proper usage of fancy deionized or ultra-high purity water. Energy consumption is also a metric usually hidden in the background of research. By simply switching off equipment when not in use, or increasing temperatures of ultra-low freezers by scientifically tested 10 degrees Celsius, this figure could be greatly reduced. Professor Kingston Mills, the director of Trinity's Biomedical Sciences Institute, stated in this year's Green Labs panel discussion in February, quote, increasing temperatures of freezers from minus 80 to minus 70 degrees Celsius saved 20,000 euros in the institute. Ashin Joyce, president of Neuroscience Ireland's Early Career Research Network and a member of TCD Green Labs, reiterated to me how important it is for early career researchers to be aware of their energy usage. Simple color labeling, such as a traffic light sticker system to make clear what equipment should remain on or can be turned off, have been implemented in multiple research labs on campus. When asked about the reluctance that researchers have about viable alternatives, Joyce stated that these, quote, come from a conception that sustainability comes at a cost to your science, that you'll actually sacrifice your time, quality, or even success in order to make it sustainable, but it's actually the complete opposite, that there are viable alternatives, that there are other labs you can collaborate with, and these might be very small, but very effective in the long term. Waste in research labs is usually the most discussed, and also the most apparent. Mentioned in the guide, quote, an average Irish person produces 61 kilograms of plastic annually compared to an average bench scientist who typically produces over 1,000 kilograms of plastic waste each year. In the biological sciences, a plethora of single-use plastics are used without so much as a blink of the eye. Waste is also in conjunction with green lab chemistry, in which toxic solvents and reagents continue to be used in old procedures and stored within ever-accumulating waste jars. An awareness of more modernized protocols could help prevent the accumulation of hazardous waste. Pauline Schmidt, a postdoctoral fellow in the Biomedical Sciences Institute and the secretary of TCD Green Labs, has long observed the carelessness of waste disposal. Even from early on in her career, Schmidt stated to me, quote, It seems logical to apply personal life practices to daily life at work. Waste reduction is one of the most significant goals of this initiative. Among many projects she hopes to highlight are the implementation of polystyrene recycling systems. When ordering reagents or materials, companies often package and ship products within polystyrene containers that have very little relation to the size of what was ordered, leading to excessive waste. The initiative has been working with Rehab Recycle to create a recycling stream for the success of packaging waste. I'm also thrilled to share that Trinity's Green Labs and Trinity's Sustainability Office has organized multiple meetings throughout the year with some of Ireland's largest research suppliers to discuss alternatives to improve current practices, including Fisher Scientific and Merck. With Trinity incorporating a new vice provost in sustainability, this should only add towards this green trend. 
Ireland in itself has been an up-and-coming player in green lab practices, having NUI Galway's Medical Device Laboratory being the first lab certified by MindGreen Lab in the European Union. Despite this, only NUI Galway and Trinity College Dublin are featured on Irish Green Labs, a network growing out of the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland's working group for public sector labs, with the aim of assisting labs to optimize their energy management systems. What Roselli, Joyce, and Schmidt all believe is causing the biggest hurdles within the local research community are not resources, but structure and habits. All advocate that Trinity have paid positions for increasing sustainability on campus and to encourage the implementation of green practices. Sadly, it often falls under the responsibility of trainees to increase visibility in research sustainability, the same people who are already inundated with their research projects, and the cycle more or less continues. When asked about habits and the difficulty for change to happen in the research community, the answer may be as simple as practicing mindfulness, taking the time to pause and realize where sustainability could fit into your research techniques. Awareness of any protocol changes without impacting the research is something TCD Green Labs hopes to instill from the very beginning, advocating for workshops on green laboratory practices at the start of a researcher's career at Trinity College. This sentiment seems to hold true for most movements that are worth striving for, as through changing one's habits, this can produce a chain reaction of changing the habits of those around you. It's a cultural shift surrounded in tradition that will certainly be difficult to modify, but one will never be alone in this effort. Perhaps through highlighting the consequences of conducting scientific research en masse, this initiative will inspire others and future Trinity researchers to consider Green Lab practices as normality. For today's episode, I'll be interviewing someone who not only advocates for systemic changes within Trinity's research community, but also practices living the green lifestyle, both in the lab and within his personal life. He is a third-year PhD student in Trinity College Dublin. His doctoral research revolves around concussion and brain health, and is investigating whether there is an associative link to cardiovascular health and disease among retired sporting athletes. As a member of the TCD Green Labs committee and my Green Lab ambassador, he was part of the team that spearheaded their way to platinum level my Green Lab certification at Trinity's Neuroscience Institute. He's currently aiming to establish synergistic links between industry and academia to adopt innovative green policies. Please welcome the sustainable superhero, Ashin Joyce. Thank you, Ashin, for uh, joining me on the podcast today. 
this is actually the second time <laughs> I'm interviewing you because <laughs>、mm. uh, unfortunately there's been some sort of hiccup with, I guess, the University Times newspaper, student-run newspaper at our university.、Mm. Uh, this isn't the first time they haven't gone back to me on an article I've written. So I don't know. I, I feel like I needed to do something,、mm. and、um, this topic is super important to me, super important to、um, your network and the researchers at our university. So I decided to do a podcast episode on research sustainability, and thought、uh, you would be a fantastic guest for this part. So、uh, thank you for joining today. Oh, thanks for having me, Kevin. I guess the old line, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller. It's,、uh, <laughs> it's good to be chatting with you today. Awesome, and、uh, I guess I'll just do a small introduction here,、mm -hmm. uh, just for the listeners,、uh, just in case people skip to this very interesting interview. Ashin is a third-year PhD student at Trinity College Dublin, working on concussion and brain health. He is the president and co-founder of Neuroscience Ireland's Early Career Research Network. And among other many different things that he does, he's also a PhD tutor for Access Ed Scholars Ireland program, which is where we've met.、Uh, I guess most relevant to today's discussion, he is a committee member of Trinity's Green Labs, and of course, an ambassador to my Green Lab. So it's just something I picked out of your、uh, LinkedIn profile, Shane.、Mm. You had a quote there where you aim to combine your love of science. With that of science fiction, and this is、yeah. something I I found when we <laughs> had our discussion previously. So that was it's super nice to see. <laughs> yeah, I guess、um, being a, an inner nerd at heart,、um, <laughs> avid comic book collector, and kind of science fiction aficionado. So、um, from my perspective, a lot of thoughts and stuff would stem from a lot of inspirational, you know, quotes or interpretations. So I remember one specifically. Um, when I was kind of getting into the sustainability at the beginning, you know, Thor once said,、um, "The fate of your planet rests not in the hands of gods; it rests in the hands of mortals." And、uh, mm -hmm. at, at the time, I found that quite poignant because I started reading around of different researchers and different kind of advocates for sustainability. Robert Swan, he was、um, the first man in history to walk from, or walk to both North and South Poles. And、uh, he said, "The greatest threat to our planet is that the is the belief that someone else will save it. The combination of both fiction and science fiction there kind of cross dimensions in a way. So I think that was kind of a a key driver for me getting involved in the sustainability side of things. The whole storyline of superheroes and their ability to inspire generations、yeah. of youth to do something that is incredibly hard, incredibly difficult to do." Whether that be fighting crime, or <laughs> I guess in in terms of our case,、um, saving our planet,、mm. is、uh, a superhero effort that need to inspire anybody who's who's willing to pick up any sort of initiative that or helps in that regard. So, I think that's a very valiant effort. <laughs> Definitely a great connection to have、um, in the initiatives that you do. And I guess just a sort of intro、uh, for yourself,、mm. um, if you could just talk a little bit about your experience in academia, so your previous、mm -hmm. degrees,、uh, previous relevant extracurriculars, and、uh, followed by what you're currently doing now. So a bit about your PhD work, and of course the current、uh, extracurriculars you're a part of. All starting back, it was 2014. I、uh, started my undergraduate degree. It was three years long in health and performance science in UCD. So. 
it was a nice broad area to to kind of get involved in academia and figure out which direction that I was wanting to go. And it was actually in my final year, I got a lecture from a good friend of mine now um, on concussion. And uh, for some reason that just stuck with me. I was coming towards figuring out what I wanted to do in my next step. And I saw that there was a master's in Trinity in neuroscience and that a couple of PIs and researchers at the time, now my current supervisor, uh, were, was getting involved with brain health with current and retired athletes. So I thought, oh, maybe if I if I pushed it, I might be able to get involved with them and uh, kind of combine my love of the neuroscience and brain health with my sporting background. And um, lucky enough, I uh, <laughs> I don't know how, but I got in. It was brilliant. It was very tough, but it was a great kind of, I guess, transition course. And I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do next. So and was lucky enough that I got myself a position working between uh, Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Med School as a research assistant. So I worked over in Boston for a year on preclinical models of traumatic brain injury and wanted to avoid adult life a little longer. So I reached out to Mm. my supervisor. and uh, said, any chance we could figure out how I'd do a PhD with you? And she was like, okay, we'll chat more. We um, put a project together and uh, that's what I've been doing for the past three years. As everyone had before the pandemic began, I had my ideas of what my project and my PhD would look like and that all got flipped on its head. I've been working extensively on reading and writing and systematic reviews and the framework of my thesis now is the effect of long-term sporting engagement and head impact exposure uh, among current and retired athletes. So how it will impact their general health and cardiovascular health in midlife and how it will alter their brain health and cognitive function in later life. So with that came a lot of time, you know, with clinical samples and, you know, bringing them back to the lab and analyzing them. And that's how I kind of started conversing more and socializing more with uh, fellow early career researchers and the topic of lab sustainability kind of came up and that's how I kind of got involved there and didn't realize how involved or passionate I, I kind of became over it over the last three years now I guess. As somebody as a researcher in uh, what I would consider being sport health do you feel that uh, I guess your past with um, being involved in sports and your ability to actually connect with those athletes that you you get samples from, does that um, have any impact on the research that you do? Definitely, yeah. Like it's, you see a lot of these, you know, men and women that you grew up watching on television or going watching to see, and now all, all of your sudden you're taking their blood, you're asking them to do cognitive tests, and it makes it a lot more real. And I think, as as much as I love preclinical work um, and uh, in vitro work, I really do prefer the in vivo and clinical side of things. I think there's mm-hmm. a huge capacity for more of a translational component that you can actually bring bench side to bedside. You know, you can provide patient care, individualized care, and figure out methods that will ultimately enhance you know, not only the life of the individual that you're hoping to um, improve along the way, but also their family and friends. So I think that's where my love of research is kind of taking a, a direction down that way. Definitely the translatable aspect, just comparing to my previous projects and even my mm. PhD now, 
it's certainly lacking in the things that I've been doing, uh, especially if you don't work with any human or mammalian models that mm. um, a lot of people work on in terms of, um, I guess, the basic science or foundational science. Looking for and seeing that impact almost right away um, definitely helps in the the long days you're you're mm. working on in your lab or uh, the writing of your thesis and things like that. You, you know, you you're also the the president and co-founder of this this network, mm. uh, this neuroscience network in Ireland, and once a part of a network in back in Canada, nice. and uh, found a lot of benefits in being a part of such a network. And I just wanted. Uh, if you could describe, you know, what sort of things that being a part of this network um, aids in, in that regard. It was back in 2020. There was a email sent around looking for volunteers uh, to help out with putting together a young investigator symposium uh, that Neuroscience Ireland do uh, biannually. So I got involved with that. I think there was maybe eight to ten of us at the time um, got involved on the back of that we decided to put together this early career researchers network. Uh, as, as with anybody, we had ideas, but we hadn't a clue uh, what we were doing. <laughs> but we put together a lot of ideas about what we wanted to achieve with it and gaps that were missing, uh, you know, difficulties and things that we were looking for as early career researchers that mightn't have been provided. So we wanted to facilitate that. So at the beginning, we didn't give anybody any any particular role, any designated task, we just shared it amongst ourselves. So we established a monthly NeuroConnect series. So we would invite early career researchers to come in and they would talk about their research. And we also use our network as a platform for people who would want to practice their Viva before they go in and do their presentations, okay. uh, any particular research areas. So again, I talked about sustainability. We had other people talking about particular um, skills, so EEG, uh, neuroimaging, um, and then also uh, that kind of people who were wanting to move out of academia into private industry. Having that discussion and teaching people how to translate their CV and see the skills that they have, how they can be highly transferable and make them in themselves into a very valuable commodity anywhere in the workforce. So we're trying to encourage young researchers not to lose their sense of identity or feel <laughs> any which way if they go and leave academia. You know, only 4% of PhD students will actually transition into a successful ac academic career path. There's a lot more opportunities and I think the way the world is moving towards, you know, four day working week, more remote working hours, people's priorities changing with um, lifestyle and family. Private industry has become more, you know, viable option for people and uh, more attractive. So we're trying to, you know, bridge those gaps that, you know, not necessarily of their own fault, but a lot of established researchers and PIs would forget. It always upset me that, you know, such a small percentage of PhD students or early career researchers end up being successful academics in their whatever mm. field they're in. Once you start thinking about they are likely innovating new positions or mm. making jobs for themselves in private industry or even in NGOs, for example, it's sort of inspiring to know that despite that low percentage, there are mm. probably countless other positions out there. You just don't know it yet. And having this network probably helps in that. Although I've been president now for I don't know how long off the top of my head, but a good mm. while now, I wouldn't 
be able to do any of it or I don't even like saying the word I it's always we like myself and the rest yeah. of the committee were able to leverage our place as early career researchers um, with the more senior council members as well to be able to you know get their help and get their support and insight to facilitate uh, new researchers and new young students that have a passion for it as well. And that last part of your intro was about your found interest, a big interest in the research sustainability mm. and being a part of Trinity's Green Labs committee. And uh, we'll definitely get into the nitty gritty parts of it. Um, but just before we get there and setting us up for that discussion, if you could describe you know, what going green means to you in the general sense and what aspects of your life have improved by developing this sort of lifestyle. For me, going green, if I was to think about it, it's just one word would be sustainability. So I think that a lot of researchers and academics now, you know, they're striving to make a difference, make a proven impact towards greener research practices, ultimately without impacting their scientific output. And I feel that going green, in, in, in my sense, would be collaborative. It's just simply about raising awareness. I think that was one of the key aspects is people's knowledge or people's awareness of what's already happening or what's already ongoing just isn't as apparent. Not just in research uh, mm. or any of the extracurriculars you do, but maybe in your personal life as well. What sort of aspects of that have been improved by sort of adapting this sort of green lifestyle? So in my personal life, myself and my, my girlfriend and long-term partner, Val, like we would be very adamant about all of our sustainable practices anything and everything that we can recycle we recycle any packaging we buy we always you know we question as to god why is there so much plastic why is there so much waste yeah. being used for four apples or four pears you know we just pick them up put them in the basket or the trolley or bag toiletries and shampoo bottles we always make sure they're all 100 percent recycled plastic yeah we, we'd be keen advocates for it ourselves and you know i think that's where it started from us it started at home and shift into our working lives. In terms of this movement in general, mm. do you see that there are certain pitfalls that need to be further improved upon? I think I'll, I'll end up repeating myself a lot, but I genuinely think that the one thing is just knowledge sharing and uh, raising awareness. Like I feel, you know, there is sustainability among, especially for me anyway, the health sciences is a key aspect of change, not only among the research groups themselves, but also among the teachers, uh, the lecturers, uh, academic institutions. So on um, a global platform, uh, research labs are known to consume, I think it's around 10 times as much energy as an office space of a similar size, four times the amount of water, and can lead to reduction of about five and a half tons of plastic waste each year, which would equate to 2% of the world's plastic pollution or production. As an early career researcher myself, like like yourself and most others, we may have begun with no clear emphasis on actively working to reduce our environmental impact by which our scientific outputs could be achieved in a sustainable and environmentally conscious fashion. So one of the pitfalls is just knowledge sharing and, you know, communication exchange and the, you know, building a proper platform, um, which I feel there's a few initiatives that you mentioned, you know, within Trinity, uh, myself, my Green Labs and the Irish Green Labs website that launched um, earlier this month. So um, Ireland is on the forefront. Anybody will will 
I back that myself and anybody else will. Like we are one of the leading ones in Europe, um, if not uh, across the globe in terms of my green labs uh, data that I've seen uh, over the past few months. I guess sharing ideas, exchange of ideas, mm. uh, most of the sustainability or techniques that reduce my waste in the lab are just off of techniques I've heard, I've seen postdocs or uh, professors um, suggest just based off of their own beliefs. It's not mm. it's not like it's a culture yet at mm. our institute or universities across the world, but it's just certain people that have taken that on mm. and have passed on that suggestion or recommendation to implement in your own work. So I think that exchange of ideas is super important, super important. Bio, you've mentioned that you are an ambassador to My Green Lab, which is a mm-hmm. nonprofit um, from the U.S. What does that ambassador role entail? What are your responsibilities there? It's an initiative connecting like-minded researchers from across the globe uh, on a a virtual platform. And now with a lot more conferences kind of becoming in person again, it has facilitated a lot more, uh, you know, talk. There's a a Teams group. Got every every evening I I would have a look at it, but there is a lot of messages and people Mm -hmm. in terms of knowledge exchange from, you know, suppliers, um, as you said, techniques in the lab. I've done a, a couple of talks for them um, as a My Green Lab ambassador, and it's connected me then people uh, with other people on a global scale. Uh, even within Ireland, it's facilitated me bringing knowledge back to the Trinity Green Labs committee, uh, implementing some of it, discussing some of it more, sharing that knowledge with other institutes within the college. And we've had several talks with the big main scientific suppliers. We've reached out to several academic institutes. They've reached out to us looking for our advice. Um, we were the uh, second in Ireland behind uh, Dr. Inu Fitzgerald over in NUIG, NUI Galway. Uh, we've got platinum certificate level uh, in the neuroscience institute. So I think we were one of the inaugural people to kind of bring Green Lab Uh, initiatives on a national platform so it's nice to be able to see all of these other people uh, begin to facilitate it within their colleges. You also mentioned that this connected you or allowed you to meet people in uh, Trinity's Green Labs group in terms of their role in the Trinity community what are the goals of, of this Green Labs initiative? From my point of view we have a few key or core goals. One is to begin to adopt as much as we can greener and more sustainable practices. So beginning at a grassroots level with us as PhD students and early career researchers, getting that buy-in from principal investigators, from our supervisors, uh, from a lot of other people who would have a lot more of a say within college dynamics and uh, the regulations throughout the different institutes. So uh, we're trying to connect all the institutes together, uh, trying to build up uh, lab sharing inif- initiatives, whether that's um, a digital SOP of green techniques, putting a list of suppliers together, their greenhouse gas emissions in terms of their uh, product deliveries, their actual product uh, manufacturing production. We're trying to increase knowledge amongst the students. so. I've devised a problem-based learning scenario that I'm hoping to introduce next academic year in the School of Medicine um, with first-year meds that I would teach. I think a good forward moving of any initiative is open to collaboration and discussion. So two parties listening to each other, not necessarily changing each other's 
opinions to a whole other thing, but being able to listen and understand the other person and maybe just slightly alter or change their perspective of, of what it may be. So if there are people that are a bit more reserved or resilient or defiant against that change, it's just about understanding what we're trying to achieve. So adopting new greener practices and methodologies, bringing a paradigm shift away from non-sustainable practices of old and towards a new and eco-friendlier and more diverse metric of research and innovation. I think that's what's going to bring us forward. So it's not about teaching the students or telling the students uh, anything. It's simply about starting that conversation with them. If they don't take anything about it, even if they just go to a friend and say, oh, did you hear about that sustainability thing? Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, that was great. Even just them simply having that, it will begin hopefully to snowball. Um, so if we can start that at least now with first years coming in across the institutes, hopefully we can, you know, um, hopefully we can make some kind of an impact on livelihoods. Just how grand this this idea of research sustainability is, there's just so many aspects to tackle it from. If you can just have that initial conversation and have somebody who was a part of that conversation then start another conversation with somebody else, you have that chain reaction of awareness, chain reaction of potential habit changes um, in whatever they do in terms of research or in terms of their role in the institute that they are a part of. So I think that sort of discussion is super important and listening to each other again, like you said, I guess like your first year students that you are teaching, mm. as well as early career researchers, either at our stage or maybe just ahead of us starting their own labs, what could they do to help contribute to the overall goals of your of your group, Green Labs? There was a good handful of us were the initial kind of you know, advocates for sustainability within the lab and within the workplace. So it's trying to build a more connected network of advocates for green research, you know, throughout Ireland, throughout Europe, throughout the world, you know, whether it's a, an ability to bulk order alongside other labs, you know, share common materials and reagents. We all have the same goal. We all have the same outlook. We're all, you know, ultimately trying to strive for a greener, more sustainable workplace of research and creation. I think if people are looking to get involved, I think, again, it's just start that conversation with other people. There is a lot of resources out there, whether it's certain pages um, like MIT Labs have had. We have our TCD Green Labs book. We uh, did one for just specifically the Institute of Neuroscience. Uh, My Green Labs have a whole section of resources, too, and joining that advocacy network and their ambassador program it will just connect you with a vast hugely vast network of people i think it's just talking to people would be the best way you know whether it's asking people in your institution whether there is other people around uh, that are involved talk to people like i i guilty of it myself but just talk and, and you know do your research uh, if you have an idea bring it forward to your PI and say what would you think about introducing this do you think we could collaborate with that lab in terms of trying to share our materials to kind of reduce it and make an impact along the way it, you know the impact might be small in, in, in the initial uh, time frame but in the long term it will have a huge impact we've talked a lot about uh, what individuals can do um, in terms of starting that discussion and mm. uh, potentially being more formative or or gaining the information on 
how their institute is trying to be more sustainable, how around the globe researchers are trying to be more sustainable. But at that worldwide scale, mm. what would you say are the biggest hurdles researchers need to address at their institutional level? So what are yeah. some of the pitfalls that institutes have that researchers need to not only be aware of, but potentially try and change? To facilitate a, you know, a healthy transition to climate sustainability within the academic systems, I think there's going to be an individual change amongst researchers and also a systemic change amongst the organizations themselves. So they kind of need to go hand in hand. You know, if there is an attempt to implement that systemic change, it's ultimately going to fail if they don't find that grassroots support from bottom up. So individuals that are on the ground resulting in behavioral changes, which, you know, I, I, I believe is myself and my fellow colleagues within TCD um, and now growing into a wider Irish community. You know, these are grassroots initiatives that we're putting in place, you know, on their own. They're not going to potentially amount to much to make the academic system or the academic culture sustainable or climate neutral. It's an academic culture, I believe, that would need to change. So the institutions and the universities, you know, providing the knowledge on climate crisis and potential solutions and innovative combat strategies, you know, they also need to ultimately act on that knowledge. So in this way, they can have a leading role or a core role showing how a sector can successfully transition to greener climate sustainability practices in research and how that would affect uh, downstream over years to come. I was happy to know that Trinity is having these discussions with top companies that are providing the materials researchers use, do their experiments, having discussions with them to talk about how they can reduce the amount of waste that is coming from these things. Super excessive packaging. I don't know if there's many people, many of my friends who are listening have, have shown me pictures of these giant boxes or an ice box where they've only ordered this tiny tube of, of reagent and it's the size of this table that I'm using. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I've written a few blog posts and stuff and it's funny you say that. I think that was one of the lines that I said is you'd order one tiny vial, whether it's, you know, 50 microliters and it comes in a giant styrofoam box, which is impossible to ultimately, um, you know, degrade and recycle full of dry ice and then you're left with just a teeny tiny little vial and you're going why 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 was all this packaging necessary i know it's for safety and you know biological hazardous waste and all this kind of stuff but still it just seems a you know a bit overkill like you say something that you would advocate for and i think is a good solution at the institutional level is to talk to early career researchers and potentially people who haven't even reached that step yet in their careers providing a course or some sort of workshop when they start at an institute to have them think about research sustainability from the get-go. Is this something that you believe Trinity is going or leaning towards or perhaps other institutes that you've heard of, are they doing this? I think that was one of the things that we were trying to strive for within uh, our committee itself was trying to bring that sustainability aspect in from the get-go. So any any new hires, any new research assistants coming in, 
um, new students, PhD students, master's students, anyone that would come into a particular research institute would always have to go through the kind of onboarding and training, whether it's biohazard and safety, waste control and, you know, fire and safety, all the usual stuff. There should be a section, even if it's 10, 20 minute video with a series of questions brought into it, discussing the aspect of sustainability within the workplace. I think that, you know, is going to be a core aspect in the future to kind of reach climate sustainability and a, a change in culture. Academic institutions specifically, you know, they've been involved in efforts to achieve sustainability for decades, really, you know, back in, I think it was 1990, there was over 500 university reps from over 50 countries and they signed a declaration. So it was the Association of University Leaders for a Sustainable Future in 1990. And they were basically arguing that higher education institutes, they had a core responsibility to engage urgent action to try and bolster any consequences of climate change and other environmental uh, crises. Three decades later, sustainability education, as well as sustainability research and campus initiatives, they are a lot more widespread and have become a very prominent feature in higher education. So it's talked about, but I think it needs to be be backed. You know, uh, words are great, but actions speak louder. So following through with it, I think, will be a core thing which we're trying to push through. Mm-hmm. I hope to see that. And I think it'd be a great addition to just the sort of uh, entry level um, workshops and training that most researchers mm-hmm. have to do. An additional 20 minutes to a, you know, five hour, six hour training session, mm-hmm. I don't think will be too much. And I think no. it will be quite um, useful in the long term. In terms of the various stages of academia or research, there's, I guess, early career, so PhD students, postdocs, people like us. There's the principal investigator and the institutional directors, even the deans of research at universities. What would you say are the biggest differences in personal characteristics? So, you know, any of their traits, attributes, characteristics that they have, uh, generation gaps even, or professional characteristics like it could be political affiliations or responsibilities that they have in terms of their role. What would be the biggest differences in those that contribute to them going green or not? I am a big nerd at heart. You know, Albert <laughs> Einstein, I just remember this one quote that he had said, problems cannot be solved at the same level of awareness that created them. Previous generations, uh, n- nothing of their own doing, but just simply that you know, lack of awareness and lack of insight and knowledge into the harmful practices that were being carried out across several sectors and industries. It was just normal that these things were going ahead. And I think with more of that, you know, trying to address the global challenges today that would impact human activity um, on the environment. You know, the, the UN has a defined set of sustainable development goals. And I feel that that has come from our increase in knowledge, our increase in awareness. So I feel that maybe one of the pitfalls, again, is probably ones that everybody would say is people get stuck in their own habits. It's a simple matter of fact of things are easier when you've always done them that way. And to me, that right. line scares the bejesus out of me. But I don't like that mindset of we've always done it this way, so we're not going to change it. 
but I feel that there is, especially in Trinity, there isn't a lot of pushback. It might simply come down to a financial component or an organizational component in terms of hierarchy and who can actually implement the changes. So a lot of them are open for the discussion. It's just about going through the correct channels to implement it. If sustainability isn't necessarily on somebody's forefront of their mind, they may be not as keen to get involved purely based on their own workload and their own initiatives and their own personal and career goals, which is understandable um, and respect, uh, respectfully so. I think as scientists, you know, we can observe an increase in pollution, whether it's you know, depletion of oxygen and water, whether it's natural resource scarcity or a significant and, you know, quite frankly, accelerated loss of biodiversity. I feel that it is our responsibility as a young and upcoming generation to the great resignation is upon us. A lot of researchers are beginning to, you know, resign and uh, put their focus elsewhere. And early career researchers are moving into these uh, leadership roles. So with that sustainability knowledge and awareness behind us, where there will be that transition of our generation, our workforce to be able to wash over, you know, you know, with a green wave of sustainability practices. So in my own head, anyway, fingers crossed uh, it will. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I don't think it's anybody's particular fault um, or any anybody's downfall, but I do feel a lack of openness to initiatives, diversity and change that um, might, you know, hinder the initial progress, um, I guess. Mm. And I did ask you this previously, um, but I think it's a good way to summarize action towards a more more sustainable research but action mm. towards more sustainable lifestyle mm. uh, a more sustainable future for everybody you know a lot of the people that i talk to about this topic whether that be early career researchers researchers who are have been in their discipline forever mm. and people outside of the scientific community as a whole have the thought that it takes a lot of work for change to happen and i mm. see this so many so many times whether that be the protocols that we use in labs the reagents we use in labs the way things have been for decades what would you say to people who have this idea in their head i think one of the things would be if you have a supervisor or if you have you know any kind of manager or boss that you are working you know working with or working for you know as the years progress and it's just natural career progression you start off in the lab and the more you know your interests change you move further and further away from the day-to-day -day lab practices and i feel maybe just reaching out to supervisors and just bringing them back into the lab and just showing them like we, we can't do it this way we can do it this way and will you will you let me make this change and i can show you and you know as scientists, we all love data. We all love a nice colorful graph with data points. So I'm going to do waste management. I'm going to do, you know, freezer and fridge control in terms of energy consumption. And I'll bring you back and show you over the, over the next two months, the changes and the savings that we've made, which we could put into other parts of our, our of our research and our grants. So I was a while back. I, I, I like watching a lot of those kind of, you know, inspirational kind of sporting documentaries and things like that, or, you know, Edmund Burke once said that nobody made a greater mistake than he who did nothing because he could only do a little. I feel that that just kind of rings through quite a lot as a lot of people will just refrain from 
thinking, oh, I'll, it's not going to amount to much if I do this. And then I always come come back with, of course, a science fiction quote from the good old Commissioner Gordon from DC Comics. And he said, mm. you know, you, you're going to make a difference. A lot of the time it won't be huge. It won't be even visible, but it will matter just the same. So if we can get everybody thinking along the same mindset of, I know there's been institutes that have put up landfill instead of general waste and the transition from moving all of that stuff into the recycle has been you know, absolutely dramatic. I guess to reiterate how important it is that these small steps in uh, our actions and communication or changing simple words to just have people kind of think of it in a different way mm. uh, is not only what you know this podcast is all about, but hopefully in terms of communicating science or communicating research sustainability practices, this is adopted to mm. change that perspective. It's just a simple thing that can have people for one second, just think about the uh, impact of what they're doing, which mm. a lot of people don't do, not because they don't want to, but because either they don't have they don't have the time or they're autopilot because there's just so many things to do in their schedule. So mm-hmm. um, it's great that you've mentioned that. That's all the serious questions I had for you, Ashi, and you, you've passed the gauntlet. Well done, well done. Oh, nice relief for, uh, <laughs> for the afternoon. I do have a sort of fun question. Well, it's a replacement mm-hmm. of the fun question yeah. uh, for, for this podcast. So uh, in this season, I guess it's not new anymore. It's the almost the, the penultimate episode of this season. Mm. Uh, this is a segment where it's called Literal or Metaphor, where I try and tie today's expression the grass is always greener on the other side to the guest experience, so your experience. And I did send you these two questions. You can either choose between the literal or metaphorical question. Which one would you like? I'd probably go for the metaphorical one, if that would be all right with you today. As a superhero uh, aficionado. Yeah. So Hashin chose the metaphorical question. The grass is always greener on the other side. It's an expression that describes one discontent with their current situation or the materials he or she possesses and a desire for more. So if you were a superhero, Sheen, that you could, in the snap of your fingers, or like the opposite of Thanos, best satisfy this craving within all researchers, what one thing would you grant them and why? I, I remember reading this and initially, of course, my head started thinking, Okay, we'll make sure that nobody is put in any CGI, you know, leotard or super (laughs) tight thing, just not to scare the crap out of anybody. Best satisfy a craving within all researchers. One thing that you could grant them. A lot of people might say a lot of time or, you know, people would say just success in their research to move (laughs) on to the next thing. Um, Every experiment will work. (laughs) (laughs) Every experiment will work, yeah. But I guess... I think it would be the idea of having some kind of clairvoyance or some kind of foresight within to every research action that they take, every product procurement stage, every delivery that they order, every piece of material. If they could look at one single styrofoam box, as you said, that they ordered, a tiny 50 microliter violin, where that styrofoam box would be in 15 20 30 years time and see the overall impact it would have on not just environmental situation and biodiversity because everybody thinks that it's you know it is it's a huge impact on mother nature and the health of the planet 
but the health of human beings in the long run like we're all we're all aging we're all you know compared to 100 years ago living 20 30 years longer we have a lot more technological advancements to deal with diseases and you know as we're all aware at this stage you know pandemic and epidemic control so give people that foresight as to each action that they take what the repercussion will be in the long term i don't know what kind of superhero name that, that somebody would get or what kind of you know i hope they wouldn't go bedazzling their suit too much or something like that but um but yeah i'd say <laughs> that's probably what i'd grant them would be the uh, superpower of foresight in terms of the sustainability approach uh, keeping in, in in topic with our podcast today yeah, I wonder what that would that be like, uh, sort of Professor X or uh, or uh, Doctor Manhattan even, but that might yeah. be even that would be too much power. <laughs> <laughs> too much power for one person, yeah. Doctor Strange, maybe he he knows the future, right? Doctor Strange, yeah, using the uh, one of the old in, in Infinity Stones, the Time Stones. Unless you go into uh, <laughs> the quantum time zone and they turn into uh, page that or you know uh, paperweights, and uh, <laughs> it's all been a waste of time for the past ten years. Oh, there is a there is a superhero. I don't know if you watch Rick and Morty. There was a episode where somebody's able to control kind of like the last airbender, all the different elements, and she could sort of solve any environmental issue if people if four people come and put their rings together and summon her essentially. So that I think that's like an eco eco man eco woman. Uh, yeah. superhero it didn't end well but no rick and morty <laughs> episode ends well so <laughs> no no yeah i de- definitely you're right i think involving as well a lot of pop culture i think would be huge like right, especially like right. myself and val were huge into uh bob's burgers she introduced me to that and i am hooked oh, cool. on that so um you know if we had um louise's just absolute grit and whereabout just to take anybody on and gene's musical you know but his initiative or his creativity or intuition for that side of things and then tina just annoyingly i probably you know i don't run with without moving my arms but um Mm. but yeah i think that kind of a trio (laughs) some kind of like you know a power rangers kind of uh, zord morphing kind of ability between the three of them in terms of uh greening the the grass on the other side i think that would be pretty uh pretty cool to watch yeah, just not as cheesy as the Power Rangers, I hope. Oh, no, no. <laughs> well, I suppose that's what makes it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and I'm also glad you didn't say uh, unlimited money, because uh, I think a lot of people would say, you know, something to grant all researchers is as much money as they want to mm. spend on anything they want to put work towards, which is, I don't think, sustainable at all, obviously. Um, yeah, like I think but, I, was, I was trying to come up with a good answer, but if i'm being frankly honest there's a my my cousin uh, over in uh, in boston um he came up you know he was there with his sister and his and, and her friends and they asked oh what superpower would you have they were all kind of saying you know flight and super strength strength and speed and all this and he was only six at the time and i still remember it and it was about five or six years ago now and it was one of the best answers i've ever heard and he just said I would have the power of super intelligence because then I could just make a machine or a pill that would give me all of your superpowers. And then I would just have, yeah, I'd always win. And I just thought like coming from a six year old, that's the initiative that we need or the drive or, you know, hopefully not the scary uh, forthcoming of a supervillain in them. But, um, right. you know, I, I, I would never have been able to match his answer for something like this. But yeah, just 
if people like him could figure up a sustainability initiative, I think we'd be all okay. Uh, good Lex Luthor, almost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good Lex Luthor with hair. Yeah, <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, that, that's honestly all the questions I have for you, Ashin. Um, it's a great discussion uh, about research sustainability. We threw in some uh, very nerdy superhero stuff in there, which I really enjoyed. So towards the end of these discussions, I just give the guests an opportunity to highlight anything that they thought was relevant in the discussion. So any final thoughts that you may have about research sustainability and any self-promotion that you want to do? I guess to kind of round it off, I think if we are going to succeed in becoming greener in our research practices, you know, communication and unity is probably going to be the most integral component. So on a national level, we have Irish Green Labs website uh, was launched in uh, the month, this, this just this month, uh, gone. So, you know, it's been the culmination uh, of dedicated and collaborative work uh, spearheaded by uh, Dr. Ina Fitzgerald over in Galway. I feel, you know, this initiative was built on stability of four pillars. You know, you've got energy, water, waste and chemistry, if they're the, the elemental things for uh, this kind of airbender style. But they want to foster a collaborative, transparent and supportive network to share expertise, resources, and uh, establish global networks among the academics and researchers. So I feel if you haven't checked it out, I would check out the Irish Green Labs and, you know, you can sign up to get uh, all the promotions and become a, a member of the network. Um, if you do want to reach out to me, um, you're probably aware I can talk for Ireland. So I love to talk <laughs> to people. So um, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. So um, if you search me up there, I'd be more than happy to connect with people and chat more. I, I wouldn't be doing half the stuff I'm doing today. Um, I think, as I said to you previously when we chatted before, without my uh, my girlfriend and partner Val. So she is a, a, one hell of a driving force behind me and uh, in her own uh, career path along the way. So uh, I'll, I'll always give a shout out to her every every opportunity I get. If it isn't anyway, going to be, you know, greener grass on the other side of a, a as I don't want to be pessimistic, but on 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 a, <laughs> on a worldly sense, at least, you know, she'll always have uh, be my greener grass on the other side. So works out perfectly for me. Shout outs to Val. Also shout outs to um, uh, Camilla Roselli mm. and uh, Pauline Schmidt, who uh, I interviewed as well, uh, along with Ashin, uh, to just talk about Trinity's Green Labs initiative and their I guess, drive to to create a more sustainable culture at, at Trinity. I think those discussions were, I hope, weren't in vain <laughs> and, uh, by doing this podcast episode, mm. despite the fact that the article is not is most likely not going to come out, unfortunately. I will, I'm going to keep trying no matter what, mm. but um, hopefully this podcast episode is another step to mm. um, fulfilling um, what I hope to achieve from that article. So I, I will put all those those links that you mentioned as well as your LinkedIn profile to have people uh, communicate with you if they wish. So with that, thank you, Ashin, again, for, for coming on the podcast. It was great to discuss with you research sustainability. So best of luck in, in the initiatives you're a part of, as well as obviously your PhD project as well. Can't forget that. <laughs> of course. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'll uh, be doing my uh, my absolute best. One year left now, so uh, awesome. we'll... Uh, push it over if, if i can I'll, I'll plug it with a last quote just for the for the sake oh, yes, of the science fiction definitely. so um if i can i think superman was probably you know as 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 apt as he can be he once said uh, i once thought that i could protect the world by myself but i was wrong <laughs> <laughs>
working together, we can save the planet. So I think that would probably be if we can form our kind of uh, eco friendly justice league of sorts. I think that would mm-hmm. uh, probably be the best way that I'll, I'll, I'll leave your audience and listeners with today. Awesome. That's a perfect way <laughs> to end. Uh, OK, so thanks again, Ashin. Cheers. Thanks, Kevin. While we may not literally have the power to grant the gift of clairvoyance or hindsight in where our waste goes or the omniscience for the consequences of our present actions, we know that sustainable practices in our work and personal life are the least we can do for a better future. An awareness of how much we discard and the simple act of starting conversations can be the first step to changing culture and changing individual habits. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed learning about grass, sustainability, and superheroes. Comics did one thing right, inspiring the ordinary person to accomplish feats once attributed to magical powers, feats which are our only hope in the real world's changing climate. Okay, for personal updates, I suppose at the time of recording this, I have not gone yet, but I will be taking a road trip with my partner to Ireland's north, stopping at places like Sligo, Donegal, and the Giant's Causeway. Super excited for this trip and seeing more of this beautiful country. And for the podcast, as always, thanks so much for listening. It really does truly mean a lot to me. Do remember to follow the podcast Instagram page for visual updates and sneak peeks. And of course, anyone following will be placed into the draw to win that coveted Metaforgen swag, which will be promoted just shortly before the release of my 40th episode and season 4 finale. Rate, subscribe, share, message, megaphone this episode to your family and friends. Tune into the season finale, hopefully out before the end of the summer. But until then, stay skeptical but curious. Curious.